Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Chad sits down with Garrett Langley, CEO of Flock Safety, which provides service to police departments and homeowners associations in over 30 states. Unlike other security systems, Flock Safety's camera can see and save license plate information. Its software allows for targeted searches during a specific time frame, helping to solve more local crimes. Prior to Flock Safety, Garrett helped launch Clutch, a monthly car subscription service that provides the perfect car for everyday use, and Experience, a mobile technology company focused on helping fans have fun at live events. On today's episode, Chad and Garrett discuss how Flock Safety is helping to solve crimes, the importance of protecting their customers' privacy, and how they plan to expand into the future. Garrett, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So this is exciting for me. I think your company embodies a lot of the topics that we like to discuss here on Mission Daily. So let's jump into it. When people hear you're the CEO of Flock Safety and they ask, you know, what do you do or what's your day to day like? How do you respond? Fighting crime. It's one of the coolest things. So I've, I've, this is the third company I've started. And while every company holds a like special place in my heart and I really deeply believed in the product, I've never actually built a product that on a daily basis is changing people's lives in, in a really real way. Because like, when your home is broken into or your car is stolen, that's a huge kind of like personal space violation. You, you just, you don't feel comfortable. And when we can drive and help the police make an arrest that same day, it's such a rewarding feeling uh, to actually see that, you know, with all of the you know, negative narratives right now in the technology kind of ecosystem with data privacy, and everything that's happening with you know, Facebook and Google, it's really fun to be building technology that at its core is designed to solve such a fundamental problem. Yeah. And I think that the feedback loop you're talking about there is really interesting because if local law enforcements are empowered with more real-time alerts and data, they're going to be able to make better decisions. And if they're able to make better decisions, the community sees that. So I'd love to hear about how you know, you see your flywheel spinning and what type of uh, effects it's having. Yeah, it's really interesting. One of the things we talk a lot about internally is this idea that, so our mission as a company is to eradicate nonviolent crime. I think when you look at violent crime, it is typically acts of passion. You know the other individual normally. I think that type of activities last, it's been around for millennia. It'll probably never go away as long as humans exist. But when you think about nonviolent crime, it's entirely acts of opportunity. There's a laptop in the back of a car. I think if I smash this window and steal it, I won't get caught. So nationally, there's only a 13% clearance rate on that type of crime. And so if you're a decent criminal, you never get caught. And so we go to the local communities, we go to the local police departments and say, look, we want to use technology to drive that clearance rate up. But if all we do is put a bunch of cameras in your community, that's actually not going to change anything. Like this has to be a community, like it's a collaboration between the public and the private to make this work. The technology is the enabler. It, mm-hmm. It's the way we start capturing evidence. It's the way we start to see that there can be very fruitful relationships between the two entities. Because I know that there are in a lot of communities, very strained relationships between law enforcement and the community. And we kind of see it as a part of our job to not only just build the technology, but to also foster that conversation, which is every single chief that I talk to and every detective they didn't go into this line of work to be wildly wealthy, right? Police officers don't make a lot of money. They go into it at the get-go because they want to help, but there's a false sense that, oh, I have a grainy picture from a doorbell camera, go arrest this person. What's just That's not how life works. That's, that's not actual evidence. So it's our job to help the community understand there, there are ways to capture actual evidence 
you can help detectives do their job. We can clear more cases and kind of drive that. What our ultimate goal is, is not to solve crime, it's to eradicate it. So what we track is how are the 911 service calls trending on a trending down? Uh, and that's typically correlated with a higher clearance rate. Very cool. So I would love to just back up for a second and hear about the difference between flock safety. So a lot of people still might not, they have an image in their head now, but they're not entirely clear on what you all do. What's the difference between what you all do and then a lot of the other security systems that are out there? Um, how do you position that company? Because most people listening, they're going to think uh, Ring, Nest, August, and oh, I've got it covered. I have all those systems as well, and they're great. They definitely serve a purpose. But the name of the company is really the, the, I guess the starting point, right? So we're not called Vigilant Express. We really believe that if you are just focused on yourself, it's actually not going to lead change. Because let's say I have a bunch of cameras and I have a, a, I have a guard, which I don't, but if I did and I had a dog and my neighbor's home gets broken into, I still don't feel very good. And quantitatively, like my home value is not doing any better. Like it's not good for my family. You're not going to have the actionable evidence that you mentioned as well with all the other devices. Yeah. And so we really feel like it's a, the two prong approach is like, you've got to act as a community, hence the name flock. So it's a, it's a, you're much stronger together than individually. And then I don't have a background in criminal justice. I, I've never carried a weapon. And so when I went and started talking to chiefs of police, I said, Hey, what do you need? Like, wh- why don't you solve more crime? And they kept saying like, look, Mr. Langley, they're very formal. You know, the problem is not desire. It is evidence. And if you give us evidence, we will work a case. We will not solve every case, but if we can get actionable evidence within 24 hours, we will drive it all the way to conclusion. And so I like, to give you an example with kind of how the system works from a very tactical perspective, we have a, a local law enforcement we work with, and it's one of the safest cities in America, uh, but they, they still use our product because everyone still wants to feel even safer. A woman's home was broken into. They got a read of the plate with our camera and they were, you know, 99% sure that had to be the car, right? It was the only car that exited the neighborhood at the time of the crime. It matched the woman's description of a white sedan. And so the, the police are able to go in and say, hey, if we ever see this car again, notify us. Well, that next day, they get a notification. The car's been spotted again in a different neighborhood in the same jurisdiction. They turn on their blue lights. They go pull them over. He tries to evade, right? So they go through a little bit of a low speed chase. They eventually corner him. He has all the stolen property in his car. That's exactly what we need. Is like that guy is going to tell all of his buddies, don't commit a crime in that community. Like they'll get you. What's the scale of these crimes that are happening on a daily basis right now? Are there any estimates that your team has or that you've seen that you think are really compelling? Yeah, I mean, there's over 7 million property crimes a year. The average neighborhood experiences a crime every two months. So it's just like a very small neighborhood, right? 80 homes. At the end of the day, it's just quality of life, right? But I do believe in that that New York mentality that Bloomberg pushed, which is like, if you start with the basic stuff, the bad stuff just starts to go away too. Yeah, I definitely agree there. Um, because yeah, you start to run the numbers and you're like, okay, what's the average cop's time or detective's time worth per hour? And you get to a place where it adds up really, really fast. One of the things that we're seeing now is, you know, granted, we're only two years old, so we're not that old, but we're old enough that we're starting to see really, really positive trends in the communities we've been in longer. And so one of our police departments we work with, they just put out a report earlier this year, they've had a 34% reduction in crime in the areas they have our cameras. And that to me, like I said, that means that those police officers can better use their time because they're not dispatching for property crime. They're doing more community events. They're engaging the rest of the community. And then they're also solving, you know, the most pressing situations. So I'd be really curious. We were talking a little bit before we started recording about, you know, do you view the company as an enterprise company or D2C company? 
And I would be interested in first discussing customer success, right? Because you're servicing and working with detectives and uh, chief of police and of a whole bunch of different stakeholders here. Is there anything you can share about your philosophies around customer success? Yeah, that's actually, it's a huge focal point for us because I, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs in Atlanta or people that are thinking about starting a company. They say like, how, how did you know it was working? It was like, oh, it's really tricky, you know, because the N is so small. How do you know you're growing fast enough? And for us, what we've seen is if you plotted on, on one chart, our customer base and plotted over that, the number of crimes we've solved, they're directly correlated. And so for us, the proof's in the pudding, like every crime we solve, it seems like we just start adding more customers. Thankfully, most people don't have crimes committed to them that often. So they don't know what the process is like. They don't know how to best work with a detective. And so we've got that 800 number they can call and say, my home was just broken into, what do I do? And nine times out of 10, we'll say, look, you know, what, what neighborhood are you in? Uh, we have a point of contact, we'll reach out to them. And we will get, we will work directly with detectives on behalf of the individual because they're in a tough spot. Like their home was just broken into, they're upset. This is not a good time and time is so valuable. Yeah. And you're bringing them a system too, that you're simultaneously testing across multiple other locations. So in a sense, it's a great customer service where, yeah, I, I wouldn't know the first steps. Um, we've unfortunately had to call the police uh, here in Palo Alto about this crazy event that happened. Pretty disturbing. It was a bummer, but we had to call the police and the process was very, very unclear. It wasn't something that, you know, we did some Google searches and there was nothing there. And it's it's similar to, I really do like the patient advocacy kind of analogy if you've ever used one before, because every surgeon, every doctor took the Hippocratic Oath, they want to do the best for you. But sometimes you got to be a little bit tough. Since we work with agencies, we work with about just almost 400 agencies now. And we know when they're overworked and we need to push a little bit harder to say, hey, this is an important case. Like, I know you're super busy, but you've got real actionable evidence. Like, don't, don't give up on this case. Um, how can we help? We will also, when it's a possibility, we will do as much detective work as we can to help augment the, the police staff when it's, when it's necessary. Well, I guess your original core question around customer success, for me, while it's a very novel goal, I don't want a crime to ever occur in one of our communities. And if it does, I want to have 100% clearance rate. Hearing how you described it was fascinating because I think I'd be curious to know, but it sounds like in every situation where a crime is solved, you have, you know, remarkability is kind of baked in or it's guaranteed that it, as long as you serve enough, people are going to talk about the company, right? It's just an inevitable thing because it's something brand new. We have found it creates this, this flywheel effect where every crime we solve, people tend to talk about it, which gets us more cameras, which allows us to solve more crime, which allows us to get more conversations started. The only thing that, that I would add to that is we do tend to be very sensitive about, we don't really share stories unless a customer said like, hey, I want to talk to the press about this, or I want this to be publicized from just a privacy perspective that it is a sensitive topic. It is a personal issue. And so particularly around, because we help with a lot of violent crime as well, even though that's not our, our core mission, we still are involved in a lot of it. And we pretty much have a carte blanche policy at the company that if it's nonviolent, we can, we will talk about it. Uh, we will talk to the customers about maybe doing press or, or you know, doing kind of like some case studies. But as soon as it gets violent, uh, we just stop. We say it's not worth it. Is that just the reaction to the legal system making it very, very hard for citizens to participate in citizen arrests and things like that? To me, it's like an ethical issue. For me, it's similar to data retention. We could store the data for a year, but I just think 30 days is enough. And I think that like the government will be too slow to move. So we as businesses should start the process of drawing the line in the sand. And so for us, like, you know, we helped uh, a while back with an Amber Alert incredibly rewarding experience for the company to help such like a visceral, like, wow, this is a child. And then we were like, Hey guys, go home, 
tell your families, tell your friends, be proud of yourself today. Your hard work led to a really, really positive outcome, but we're not going to talk about this on social media. We're not going to call the press. We're just going to be really proud of ourselves and, and hang our hats. Because ha- having those things that you know internally as a culture about what you did that you don't have to yell about a lot, I think are so important because that's how great cultures are built, right? Those shared experiences of here's what we did today and here's what happened because of it. That's totally right. And I think especially early on, since we are so young, this is the chance we have to kind of define who we are as a company and, and what we care about. And at our core, it's our customer's privacy. Because we get that question right. a lot, which is like, hey, are you building a surveillance state? It's like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I think, I think the technology we've developed is an inevitable technology and we have an opportunity to implement it in a way that draws an appropriate line of, of safety and privacy. And I think that there's a lot of dialogue happening on the you know, facial recognition side as well. And I think for better, for worse, we should be having similar conversations on kind of overall data privacy online and especially the type of products that we build where you know, we do capture a lot of information and, and it's important to have clear understanding with your customer of how it's used and how it cannot be used and, and how you plan to use it in the future. Garrett, I'd be really curious, what were the inspirations for, you know, you mentioned this is your third company. What were the inspirations for these companies? Can you trace it back to anything? Was there, were there some early interests that kind of led you in this direction? For me, so I'm, I'm pretty market agnostic. So the first company I started was in live events and sports. The second company I started was in automotive. And this obviously last company now is in public safety. And for all of them, it roots back into, is there an acute enough pain point that people will talk about it? I don't like sports. I'd never watched ESPN, but I got dragged to a lot of baseball games and basketball games and they, they weren't fun. And I was like, I'd rather be at dinner. And so for me, it was like, okay, how could I use technology to make this game more fun? And so that was like the kind of the genesis of like, yeah. And then we did it. And as soon as we started to see that people were actually having more fun, at a game, we're like, okay, this is, this is it. Like this is working. Same with cars, right? I hate owning a car. I live in Atlanta and everyone has to own a car. I hate it. I don't like cars. It's a means to get to A to B. So it was like, how can I build a better car ownership experience that I actually like? And then on the crime side, I don't know anyone that likes crime. Uh, And so for me, it got to a pain point of like, why is it that our governments and our neighborhoods are using such antiquated technology? I drive around Atlanta and I drive in my neighborhood and I'm like, that's a 15-year-old technology solution. There's got to be something better. And so for us, we kind of had a dozen ideas on the table when we were thinking about what to do next after we had sold the last company. And this was one of a dozen. But what was interesting is as we brought them all to market at some stage, there was something that just clicked. Like we made our first arrest within 60 days of the beta kind of happening with just a couple customers. And I told my co-founder, Matt, I was like, dude, I know we doesn't necessarily want to get into hardware and I know we've, none of us have ever lived in an HOA and I know none of us have ever really worked with law enforcement, but the fact that this piece of junk version one, I mean, the thing was huge. It was ugly. Like it, we literally built it on my dining room table that was bought like a NEMA box online and drilling holes and soldering stuff together. It was like, if this thing can make an arrest, imagine if we actually knew what we were doing. And, and so for me, it's always been like, if you can drive back to that, a pain point that you solve that is so powerful, people will talk about it naturally. There's probably a good business. I don't know who's going to pay. I don't know how much money you can make. I don't know how big or how good of a business it is, but there's probably a business. Yeah. And it sounds like it's one that you're going to be passionate about. You've already confirmed that by nature of the experiments. And I think a lot of people don't realize like you've got to be ready to commit the next seven to 10 years of your life to this. And let's talk to you about the, uh, the founding team, because it sounds like you've had some prehistory with your co-founders and some of the early team members there. Who are your co-founders and um, how do you think about building this company? So we knew 
from the get go, we were going to start a company together. Uh, so Paige had run account management for us at the last company and Matt, uh, was the first engineer I had hired at the last company. So we had spent the last five years building a successful company and then exiting it together. Now they were, they were early, but they were not on the founding team at the last company. The founding team or the prior company had all pretty much retired. And so I, I called Matt and Paige and I was like, hey, let's start a company. And they were like, well, do you have any ideas? And I was like, no, we like working together. This will be fun. Like this will be so much fun. And so we just started getting together every night, drink a glass of wine and start brainstorming stuff. And we had a really, really complimentary skill sets where I, I'm an electrical engineer uh, and also a software developer and I can sell a little bit. Matt is an incredibly talented developer and Paige was just like general business utility player could sell, could account manage, could market, could do ops. Like there wasn't a, a problem she couldn't solve. And so I was like, great, like let's pursue this product for a couple of weeks. Oh, that doesn't feel very good anymore. Let's pursue this. And then with flock, it's like, as soon as we had a couple of customers, it was like Paige, you to manage them now, but keep getting us more customers. While like, <laughs> I was working on the hardware because it was a total piece of junk. Matt was working on the software. It's like to build a hardware company with three people, was not fun. You know, we spent the first year and I think all in, we only had five people and we had, you know, over a hundred customers and we had, you know, hundreds of cameras in the field that we built by hand. And like, that was super scrappy, but it allowed us to iterate. And we were releasing hardware changes on a weekly basis. Like we ran it like a software company. I guess we'll find out later. I think it was the right thing to do, but it's this interesting debate of like, Hey, at some point we needed to like finalize this product because hardware is not free. Circuit boards aren't free. Places aren't free. So Paige was on go to market. I was on the camera. Matt was on the software. Uh, and we kind of just drove that way for almost a full year. Very cool. And I think it goes right back to culture though, because having that founding story of, you know, shipping weekly hardware updates, that's epic because, you know, when, whenever you're building out the hardware team and there's, you know, some challenges with shipping, like in a month or two month uh, window, you can go back to the early days where it's just you and your team doing everything. We've definitely done it before. Like when we get in a bind from a supply perspective, like it's faster, faster to order bare boards. And like when you got to do what you got to do for your customer. Yeah, definitely. And I think those type of sprints and then followed by some relaxation reflection, they're fun. Like that's why most people join startups, right? Yeah, it's it's funny. We have a common saying at Flock culturally, uh, like one of our values is to do the work. And the whole mentality around it is what an incredible opportunity we have that as any individual contributor actually makes an impact. So it's very stressful, right? Because like, wow, if you miss your numbers, the company might miss their numbers. But at the same time, pause and reflect that the majority of your friends don't have that professional opportunity where their day-to-day output actually matters. And the people around them at work know if they hit their numbers. And that is this this interesting dichotomy of on the one hand, it's incredibly stressful. Obviously, you, you know that yourself, like how stressful it can be in a startup. At the same time, I think if you let it overwhelm you, you forget that there's an alternative path in life. You can go work for a Fortune 500 company and your output probably doesn't really matter. Yeah. And you're not going to come out of it with an experience too, where your numbers are directly tied to the company's numbers. So your KPIs can be referenced by the CEO as like, this helped me do accomplish A, B, and C. So I think anytime you can get closer to the front lines, you're going to, you know, worst case, you're still going to leave the experience with a ton more knowledge and uh, experiences. So I would love to hear about how are you thinking about recruiting and retention? Because this is, uh, you know, first and foremost on the mind of every CEO out there. It's not as easy as it maybe used to be, or maybe it never was easy. So what are your thoughts there? Founders Fund is still an investor in ours. And Trey over there showed me, you know, shared me a story for one of the companies he invested in, and, and I'm going to steal it because I think it's accurate for Flock too, which is 
recruiting is actually not as hard for Flock as I've had in other companies. And the reason why is if you look at the generation above us, you know, our parents and their grandparents, the best engineers and the best people, where did they go? They went to Lockheed. They went to Boeing. They went to these massive defense contract companies because that's just what you did. But now Mm -hmm. the top engineers and top salespeople, they're working in advertising companies. And so we have this unique ability to say like, do you want to work in technology? Yes. Okay, cool. Do you want to actually do something that matters? So Atlanta is a huge hub for MarTech and that's great. I've yet to have the right person, he on the right person, not go, God, it's so nice not to sell to marketers. So nice not to build software that all I'm trying to do is help another company maybe make a little bit more money. And we're actually doing something that is both very noble, but also we think will be very lucrative from a financial perspective. So the top of the funnel hasn't been as much of a problem for us. Um, And same on the retention side, as long as we keep solving crime, because that's what, when you put in those long hours and you get home and your spouse or your friends are like, man, you're grinding. It's like, yeah, but we had a multi-state investigation get closed yesterday because of our camera. That keeps you going. And when your alternative is to go work and I, I know David coming really well. I know the guys at Terminus and, uh, sales loft and they're all incredible companies. Like be honored to work at any of them. We just, we have an ability to keep people close and keep a really, really mission aligned in that regard. Yeah. And I think that's uh, very exciting because it can get demoralizing when you're working behind a screen all day long. And for so many information workers, they're looking for a measurable impact in the real world. That's how they're quantifying, you know, here's how I'm evaluating this opportunity or that opportunity. Plenty of engineers that think that way. So yeah, getting to the, to the front lines of that is, is super exciting. Are there any areas in the U.S. right now that you're particularly bullish on or where you think Flock uh, needs to be next or maybe you're already flocking there to be uh, super cheesy? So today we're live in 32 states and the states we're not live in, they just don't have a lot of people. Like we don't have any customers in North Dakota. I would love to have a customer in North Dakota. I just, we are, we're an inbound business. So we, get, we take leads where they come from. You know, markets that are surprising to me, like Ohio is a really good market for us. I never, I've never been to Ohio. I'm sure it's a beautiful place, but I never would have guessed like that would be a, a great flock market. Same with Washington, never would have guessed it. And then, you know, your usual suspects, Texas, California, Georgia for us, the Southeast is a really good market. And we really see it's kind of a spiral effect. Like we'll get one customer and then a couple of weeks later, we'll have a second and a third. And then it kind of just kind of spirals out pretty quickly where, you know, we'll start to take over a whole city. And so how are you and the team thinking about privacy? We touched on it earlier. What's the deal when it comes to privacy? You know, at a, at a fundamental level, we believe, as I said earlier, this technology is inevitable. There will be a camera on every single street corner in America because we're already on that trajectory in other countries have already proven that once you start, you can't stop. So you look at China, you look at the UK and there's cameras everywhere. So the question to me is not, should we have cameras? Cause we're past that point. The question is how will they be used? Who will own the data? What are the retention policies around that? And we believe that the best, most American, and I hate to be cheesy, like the most American way to do it is for it to be a public private partnership, you know, as a neighborhood, or as a motel owner, or as a mall, you know, you say you own a parking lot. If you buy the cameras, you should own the data, and you should have complete control over how it's used. So if you look at like our terms and conditions, we pretty much say whoever pays gets to decide how it's used. If you want to give local law enforcement access to your cameras? Great, happy to enable that for you. You don't want to? I'm not gonna hold it against you. 
Yeah. Um, so we think that's a pretty like fundamental tenet that if we woke up tomorrow and the federal government put a camera on every single street corner, we're just trying to know. We've lost total control. And not to say that anyone would be malicious. We've just lost control. I want to pay. I want to have control. So that's one. And then I think even beyond that, though, we believe it's our obligation as a business to make it hard to misuse the system. So we are constantly, and so Alexis O'Hannon uh, from Reddit and Initialize is, is one of our investors, and he was in the office a few weeks ago giving a talk because in a lot of ways, Reddit and Flock have a lot of similarities. They're, they're creating this technology, and if not properly designed, it can get pretty nasty really quickly, right? So like, let's say we stored the data forever, anyone could have access. I think by design, like, just bad things would happen. And I think Reddit was in a similar position not too long ago, a few years ago, who's sharing a story of where they didn't take the time to really design a system for what they believed was ethical, what was unethical, and kind of really drawing their own lines in the sand. And so he really challenged me and my co-founder, Matt and Paige, early on to say, what is Flock about? Are we really about solving crime? If we are, then we should make decisions off of that. We delete all of our data after 30 days because in every single case I've been involved in, you don't eat it for longer than 30 days. Argument for storing it longer, while there is some merit to it, it just opens you up to maluse. And so we draw a line there. We allow residents to opt out. So if you are about one out of 100, two out of 100, and you're just like, I don't want this thing really without my privacy, you can actually go into our system and say, I don't want to be on footage. And every time your car drives by, you're wiped. Just completely delete it. So we do everything in our power to try to figure out what are the ways we can allow every individual to feel like their privacy is being protected while their home is still being protected as well. I think too, this is bringing vital information to the community because these are issues that like it or not, I agree with you that the progress of cameras and the surveillance is uh, kind of inevitable. And if we don't want things like a social scoring system, then everybody in the community needs to start talking about you know, exactly what you mentioned. Maybe I don't want my car visible. Maybe I want data deleted on a 30-day basis. Like these are really important topics that uh, I think at the local level we need to talk about. Are there any local stakeholders that you're finding success with, interacting with, like maybe mayors or like CIOs of towns or something like that? Definitely on the, on the mayor side and on the city council side, they run on public safety initiatives and they don't necessarily know how they're going to implement anything. And so when you look at our product, you know, we've really democratized what was traditionally a very, very cost prohibitive technology. So we didn't invent license plate reading, right? We're very similar to Square in that regard. We're like Square didn't invent credit card payment processing. They didn't invent farmer's markets. They just realized there was a market opportunity to bring good technology to an underserved market. We view ourselves the same, which is like this technology has existed. We found a better way to do it using modern tech, you know, machine vision, the smartphone supply chain, and are now going after an underserved market. So we find, you know, we can go to a mayor and say, hey, did you know that for about $20 a house a year, we can put this type of product in? And their jaws just drop. Because they're used to, you think about it, the average police department has two of these cameras. That's crazy, because they might be serving 60,000 people. Most of our private customers have more license plate readers than the average police department. I think that's exciting too, because there has to be a thrilling element for the people that are getting involved or buying the cameras, right? Like, are, do you have any customers who are trying to be more proactive, like with your team or like, you know, have any customers become employees or team members? We actually, we have, uh, we have a few people who have gone from customers to employees. I view that as one of the best signals in the, in the world for, for a business. So yeah, would you mind sharing? He was one of our first customers like just truly believed in the concept. 
did not know if we could actually execute on it, but was like, I believe this. They might've been one of our first 20 or 30 customers. And at the time, he was a professional photographer. Like that's what he did and just had a passion for safety. He had three kids that lived in a community uh, and it was a nice, you know, nice neighborhood, nothing special. And he just started calling me like every other month. Hey, I got this great idea. And they were typically like really good ideas. Like he had, he had clearly put maybe even more thought into the business than I had uh, because he had been, you know, living, he was the safety chair for his neighborhood for, you know, forever. He'd done all the customer development conversations <laughs> out there on the ground. Yeah. And at some point he was just like, Garrett, like, what can I do? I was like, I, I was like, I don't, I'm not really sure I understand. He's like, look, I, I, I did sales for a while, but I, I didn't really like sales. I'm now a photographer. You want me to mop the floors? I'm in, you want me to build cameras? I will learn how. He's like, I just, I want to work here. He's like, I've, I've seen the success in my neighborhood. I believe what we're doing is the right thing to do. And I think this could be a huge company. I just want to get in early. I just want to be part of it. So we threw him in a role and he's been with us now for almost a year. And it's, and it's been pretty awesome. Yeah. Circling back with certain folks that have kept tabs on your progress or played devil's advocate is uh, so fun because that's, that's why I get so incentivized to you know, get a piece of news or do something that they said you can't. Those type of like mini games, I think, are, are really fun to play like as you go on your journey, what vision are you living in right now for the company and what's it look like over the next couple of years? Yes. You know, there's 300,000 neighborhoods in the United States and I believe they all have a right to feel safe. So for us, it's driving our costs down so we can serve even more customers. It's getting a camera on every single street because I think it's going to happen. And at the end of the day, you know, we've got some cities where we're seeing a 34% reduction in crime there's 25,000 cities that I care about. I'd like for them all to experience that. Because if we do that, now you're talking about a national impact where as a country, the crime just really isn't an issue. And you've seen it done on a micro scale in either a community or a small town. But what gets me excited is, you know, I don't view us as a camera company. I don't view us as a tag reading company. I don't even really view us as a machine vision company. I view us as a crime fighting company. And we're going to build whatever technology we have to build, whether it's hardware or software, or machine vision, we build whatever we have to, to start solving crime. It's very similar to information security where you're constantly playing a game of cat and mouse, except our, I think our criminals are a little bit less sophisticated, to our, which is to our benefit. And we can stay a little bit farther ahead. But for us, that's really the vision, which is, you know, we've got a product today that's incredibly effective in its job, but we need to be years ahead of the criminals. And so that's where we think we are today. We're going to stay that way and really just get to every single neighborhood possible. I love it. And a uh, final question here. So the podcast is about accelerated learning. These are topics that we love talking about, but I would love to get your take on how are you going about research and development right now? How are you going about acquiring information to make sure that flock safety is always, you know, years out in the future in terms of market developments and stuff? Um, what's your information gathering routine like? So we have, I think, a fairly novel approach to customer discovery and product feedback and R&D. We never talk to our customers because, unfortunately, most of them are not detectives. They don't actually solve crimes. So we're in this weird case to where the person who pays us isn't really our end, end, end user. So we have a, an exercise where every time we don't solve a crime, we get on the phone with the detective. What happened? What, what were you missing? What were you looking for that you, we didn't see? And if you look at every major development we've made at the company, it's due to that process. We were working a case 12 months ago, a large neighborhood, big break-in. We had about a dozen cameras. 
hours and hours of footage, not a really good time sense, but the victim knew it was a red truck. So the detective spent hours, days, like looking to find that red truck, couldn't find it. Then we started talking to him and I was like, I asked Richard who runs our machine vision team. I was like, Richard, like, could we just search by color? I mean, I know Google does it, you know, in their search tool. He's like, yeah, well, it's a little bit more complicated because what is a red car? And what is the shading like of a red car in dawn versus dusk? And I said, yeah, but could we get like 80%? He's like, yeah, let's try it. And a few months later, like, lo and behold, we can now search by color. And there's probably a case on a daily basis, a weekly basis that we solve because we can search by color. Searching by the type of the car, same idea. We can now read paper plates. We can detect no plates. We can detect damage. There's all these things that we now do that they're not my idea. They're not our engineering team's idea, but our product team is like zeroed in on, when we can't solve a case, we better know why. And if technology could have helped, we'll go build it because it's probably not the last time we're going to run into this situation. Garrett, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a blast. We'll have to have you on for round two here soon. Thank you very much. Have a great rest of your day. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.